Well, good morning and welcome to Hershey Free. Uh, let's start off with prayer and then we'll jump into God's word in Mark chapter 2. Uh, Father, as we open up the book of Mark again, this third week going through this book, I pray that you would reveal to us what the text is trying to say and why Mark wrote it the way he did. And I pray that all of us would walk away with uh, an idea of what you want us to leave here with this morning and that you would speak to us directly through this text. Uh, thank you for the safety in getting here for those of us who have arrived. And again, uh, pray that you would speak to us through this message. Amen. So there were the four of us. We were sitting in the coffee shop. Our chairs were aligned in a circle around a short table. We were just all staring at the table, at our half-empty coffee cups, at the crumbs from the scones laying around, and it was just, just dead silence. Nobody wanted to, to speak up and say anything. So finally, I decided to break the silence, and I said, well, guys, are we, are we going to do this? About 10 more seconds of silence continued to feel our little area of the coffee shop, and, and Tony, who was sitting next to me on my left, he said, I think we should do it. I look over at the guy on my right, my other buddy, and he said, hey, if Tony's in, I'm in too. And so, of course, all three of us, we look over at, at our friend who's across from me, and after a couple seconds, he looked up and nodded his head, and he said, hey, I'm in. Let's do this. I said, okay, cool. If we're gonna, we got to go tell Rob if we're going to do this. You see, Rob was a kid that we had grown up with all through middle school, all through high school. He was a dynamic guy, all five of us were really close friends, and he was great at football, he was great at soccer, he was intelligent, he was handsome, I mean, he was, he was kind of good at, at everything. Unfortunately, Rob had gotten into this really bad car accident his senior year of high school, and he had actually been paralyzed from his neck down, couldn't move, and it had, of course, altered his entire life. Not only did it cripple his body, it also crippled his spirit. And we, we continued to hang out with him. We would go over to his house. We would hang out and talk and laugh and joke and these things. We'd watch movies with him. But obviously, we couldn't do pickup basketball games and stuff like, like we used to. So things were just different. And, and this was always a nagging thing for him. He tried the doctors. I mean, he tried everything. He even tried that thing where they poke you with needles, acupuncture or whatever. I mean, he, he tried everything, and, and, and nothing seemed to work for him. But we were in line at the coffee shop, and while we were in line, the, the lady that was behind us were, were there at the counter waiting for our coffee to come, waiting for our scones to come, the vanilla scones, and, and the lady behind us began talking about this guy who was from Nazareth, and he had come back to Capernaum, and, and, and we had heard about, you guys have heard about him, right? He had come to Capernaum, he was a miracle worker, he was a dynamic teacher, but by the time we had heard about him being there and the stuff that he had done, he had gone. I guess he went into some small villages. He was laying low. The press couldn't find him anywhere. You know, news had kind of died down. But this lady said that she had heard rumors that he was back. And instantly, all four of us, our eyes, we, we could overhear her. Our eyes lit up and we looked at each other and all of us were thinking the same thing. Rob, we got to get robbed of this guy. And so there we were, sitting in the coffee shop, discussing are we really going to drive all the way to Capernaum with Rob? Is Rob going to let us do this? We said, hey, let's give it a try. So, so we all we threw our coffees uh, in the trash, and we buzzed out and got into my Honda because all the disciples were in one accord, right? You'll, you'll get that later. So, so we all jump into my Honda, and, and we buzz. We speed over to Rob's house, and we jump out of the car. We don't knock on the door. We just go right through the front door. We go right up to Rob. We, we tell Rob the whole story, what we heard in the coffee shop, the idea that we have, and, and hey, this is a long shot. It's kind of crazy, but this guy might be able to actually fix your, your disability. Maybe, maybe this could be it. And Rob is obviously skeptical. You know, he's tried all these things for, for, for decades. He's, he's been, or at least a decade, been going to these various doctors. And 
trying stuff, offering prayers. But he's the kind of guy that if everybody else is excited, he's not gonna, he's not gonna throw water on the situation. He said, okay, let's, let's do it, guys. I said, all right, let's do it. So we grabbed this, this mat that we found and, 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 we, and we load up Rob in, in the car and we drove all night, all through the night into Capernaum. And about 11 a.m. the next morning, I mean, this was a long trip, we finally see the city limit sign for Capernaum. Now, ironically, none of us had really thought about how we were going to find this guy once we got to Capernaum. So it's, where are we going to go? Luckily, that wasn't really a problem because everyone else had heard these rumors too. And the traffic jam was just, I said, guys, I think it's that way because that's where the line of bumpers is, is heading. So we jumped in line and slowly creeped our way. Eventually, we got tired of just sitting in the car. So, so we pull over and I bet we were at least five miles away from the house where he was in. But, but we and we wanted to get out of the car. So we got out of the car, we got the mat out, we, we got Rob on top of the mat, and, and we began this track all the way to this guy's house where, where this guy from Nazareth was teaching and talking and, and where the crowds were gathered. And man, I, I, I can't, I wish I had a picture of the moment because as we're walking up to the house, there were so many people. The crowd was just enormous. I mean, the inside of the house was obviously packed out, but I couldn't even see that. The front yard spilling into the road. I mean, there were just tons of people and we're, you know, we're, we're trying to get around the crowd, but it's not like we can just, excuse me, and, and we're, we're carrying like a small makeshift bed or this mat with our paralyzed friend on. I mean, we're not going to get around this crowd. Everybody else is wanting to get in too. So it was just impossible. We're kind of running out of ideas. We're just kind of standing there. Our arms are getting tired. And, and that's when Tony up, spoke up. He said, Hey, dudes, I got an idea. And he pointed over to the staircase going to the, the top of the roof. He said, dudes, what if we carry Rob up there and we knock a hole through the roof and lower him down? Now, Tony's not the brightest guy. I mean, he, he's a few fries short of a Happy Meal, if you know what I mean. But I didn't have any better ideas. Nobody else had any better ideas. We're just standing there. We're, we're getting kind of discouraged at this moment. So we all look at Rob. I mean, he's the one that's going to go through the hole if this thing even works. And so Rob said, all right, let's do it. So sure enough, we sent Tony back to the car. He ran back to the car. He grabbed some ropes and fishing wire, you know, whatever we could find to, to make a makeshift pulley system. The rest of us go up on the roof. And I mean, we don't have shovels with us. We, we were not anticipating our day to look like this, right? And so we just kind of took the corner of our boots and started hammering down on the ground. We found some, some old boards and some tools and stuff that the homeowner had left on the roof. And we're just, we're trying to dig through the roof. And, and you guys know how they make them out there. The roofs are just made out of like clay and dirt and stuff like that. So it wasn't that hard, but it made a mess. And the homeowner wasn't probably very happy. But anyway, we, we ended up poking a hole. We actually poked a hole in the guy's roof, and, and I, I kid you not, I mean, I wish this was on film. It was incredible because the roof just, clumps of dirt just fall down and dust just fills the whole room and the light comes crashing into the room and it's just people inside are kind of blinded by it. It was, it was hilarious. And I thought, I can't believe we just did this. And, and, and then light comes down and I look down and there's the guy. There's the guy I saw on the news. He's shorter than he looks on TV, but, but there he was. There's the, the, the dude from, from Nazareth, from that dinky little town. He's, he's right there and everybody's looking at him. And I said, guys, hurry up before we get in trouble. So we, we kind of, we, we briskly get Rob down and, and Rob, his mat ends up matching the floor. And the teacher, the teacher looks right at him and it's just, the whole room's quiet. I mean, what would you say, right? The whole room is just dead silent. Everybody's watching the, the teacher. 
And so the teacher looks at Rob, and he, I can see his eyes kind of scan the body. It's, it's obvious what the problem is. I mean, atrophy has set into Rob's limbs. It's, it's obvious he can't move, that he's sick, that there's a problem, and that we lowered him on this mat for, for a specific reason. He scans the body. He examines the situation, looks at our makeshift pulley system, probably thinking, these guys are crazy. And he ends up doing this. He looks right at my buddy, and he speaks, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And then he turns around and starts this conversation with the people behind him. And it, it was, it was kind of awkward, if I can tell the truth. I mean, we didn't bring the guy here to be forgiven. We, we didn't bring him here because of his sins. It's pretty obvious why we brought him here. He's paralyzed. Isn't that obvious? And then he just turns around and starts another conversation. It was a bit of an uncomfortable moment. So obviously that's a story of what is happening in the text that we're looking at today. So go ahead and open your Bible to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at uh, the story of the paralytic who was forgiven and then healed. And what I want you to see is that they didn't bring the guy there for his sins to be forgiven. They brought him there for healing. And we're going to look at how Jesus handled the situation and what that means for us today. So let's pick up in Mark chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 12 together. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Now some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, to Jesus, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. So he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, if there's one thing that you cannot miss in this narrative that Mark wants you to see is that Jesus saw this man's greatest need was not his healing, it was that he needed forgiveness. And this man had an if only in the back of his mind, right? It was, it's, if only I could walk again. If only I could move again. If, if only, and I think all of us can relate to this guy. In fact, I think Mark wants us to put ourselves in the shoes of the paralytic. If we, we all have our own if only, right? If only I were normal. Or if only I were married. If only I had more money. If only I had a job. If only I didn't have this disorder. If only my kids lived closer. If only my mom were still alive. I think all of us have this if only in our head. And, and, and all these if onlys may be completely legitimate and legitimate needs that we want and things that we would pray to Jesus for. However, what Jesus says to this paralyzed man in his actions is that, yes, I, I, I know that you need healing. Yes, I know that your paralysis is what's really stopping you. However, your greatest need is not your healing. Your greatest need is forgiveness. And we're going to see today in this text uh, two things. First off, that we are totally depraved. We are sinful to the bone, and this is why we need forgiveness. 
Now, before we jump into the text, I have a video clip for you from George, who was actually this summer in Capernaum. So let's check out this video. When we come to Mark chapter 2 this week, we see a scene where Jesus healed a man who was lowered through the roof of a home by his friends. That miracle took place in this city, the ancient city of Capernaum. I'm actually standing in a third century synagogue. The synagogue where Jesus would have taught is actually several layers below. Now this was actually a small community at the time of Jesus. It's a small fishing village located on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. Yet it was also a place buzzing with activity. As for the fishing industry, more piers had been found here than any other place around the lake. Furthermore, Capernaum sat on the edge of a major trade route, which would ensure that travelers would have come here from all sorts of places. Consequently, Jesus' decision to base his ministry here meant that he would come in contact with a wide variety of people. Because he was here, people from all sorts of backgrounds would hear his message. Thus, this is an early clue, the location of his ministry, that he would bring a message that would entail all sorts of people and be relevant to people from all sorts of backgrounds. Cool. Thank you, George, for, for filming that for us. Now, with fresh eyes on some of the whereabouts of Capernaum, let's jump back into our text. So Mark 2, and let's start back in verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home, and they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Now, I want us to notice how strongly Mark seems to harp on the fact that there's a lot of people there. He mentions that they gathered in such large numbers. He said, there was no room left. There's not even room left outside the door. And, and let's just compare this to what happened the first time he came to Capernaum at the end of chapter 1. So in Mark 1.33, the Bible says that the whole town gathered at the door. And we don't know whose door this is, but we can pretty well assume that it was Simon Peter's door. It was Simon Peter's house that he lived in. The whole town could gather at the door. And here, the second time he comes, word gets out. People come from all over uh, Galilee to come and see this guy. And there was no room, not even outside the door. So the front yard, the, the, the road, the, the crowd is just spilling out all through the city. I mean, the city and this house were not prepared to, to hold this many people. Now I go into detail about that. And I believe Mark goes into detail about that because over and over in this book, he points out three groups of people. There were the scribes, there were the crowds, and there, there were his followers, sometimes his disciples, sometimes somebody else like these four guys, but there's these three groups of people. And what Mark constantly wants us to do is ask ourselves, am I in the crowd? Am I here to hear him and to see him and to get something from him, to learn something from him? Or am I here to serve? Am I here, am I going to follow this guy or am I just here as a part of the crowd? And so we're going to see this over and over through the book of uh, Mark. In chapter three, we're going to see Mark, or, or sorry, Jesus sitting in the house with his actual followers. He's sharing a meal with them. And then outside of the house, there's people, there's a crowd lined up all outside the house. And people outside, they're, they're knocking on the door. Hey, Jesus, can you come out? Can, can, can you show us something? Can, can you teach us something? Can you do something for us? Can you? Everybody's bidding him to come out. And Mark is forcing us to ask ourselves the question, do I want Jesus to come out and do something for me? Or am I sitting inside the house listening to him prepared to serve alongside him? In chapter 4, we're going to see Jesus at the beach, and there's this mass of people that come to him, and, and they actually encircle him so they can't get out, and they're, they're pressing him deeper and deeper into the water so that he's about to eventually get caught in the water and maybe drown. And so he, he calls his disciples and says, hey, I need somebody to get me a boat. I'm going to stand in the boat and preach from, from the water to these people. And we're forced to ask ourselves, am I on the seashore 
pushing and listening and just trying to get a glimpse of this guy? Or am I one of his followers, drenched in sweat, running around trying to carry a boat for this guy because he told me to get a boat for him? And which, which, which group am I in? Very next, I mean, in chapter 5, we're going to see Jesus walking into the woods with some of his followers, and they're going up to a demoniac. He's, he's absolutely insane. He's loud. He's scary. He's very strong. And his followers are walking with him to go and, and talk to this guy. But there's this crowd of people up on the hill. They're watching, and they're sitting there scratching their heads, wondering why all of their pigs are running into the water squealing. And, and we have to ask ourselves, am I, am I on top of the hill going, well, I would have done that differently? Or am I walking with Jesus into very uncomfortable territory as a follower. In chapter 8, we see him multiplying fish and multiplying bread, and we have to ask ourselves, am I sitting on the crowd tapping my foot going, man, I'm hungry, where's my bread? Or am I running around carrying baskets going, I can't believe he just multiplied this stuff and, and trying to serve people and eating last. So, so which, which group am I in? We're, we're forced to ask this question. So that's the question that we're forced to ask in this chapter as well. So we're going to see that in order to be a follower, this is one of the first messages Mark wants us to see. If we're going to actually follow this guy, the first thing that we need to realize is this. Number one, we are totally depraved. We are totally depraved. Look down at verse number three. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, once again, I want us to just kind of sit in the awkwardness of this moment for a while. Jesus, I mean, all this trouble has been gone through. They, I mean, they, they knocked a hole in the roof to get this guy to Jesus. All this trouble has, has been undergone and they lower the guy down. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then he turns around and he starts another conversation with people behind him. Now, it wouldn't have been a, as been a bad if he had said, your sins are forgiven. Oh, and by the way, you are healed in the name of the Father. And I, I mean, that, that would have been different. It wouldn't have been as awkward. But instead, he says, your sins are forgiven. Nobody says anything. Jesus himself initiates turning around and starting a random conversation with some other people in the room, completely disregarding the paralytic man. I mean, how, how uncomfortable could that have been? And I think it really points out that his greatest need was not his healing. His greatest need was his forgiveness. And I told you earlier that all of us, like this man, we have this if only in our mind. Man, if only I could walk again. If only I could move again. And you and I, if only I could get that promotion. If only we could get pregnant. If only I had healing from my health disorder. If only I had that relationship I've always wanted. If only I had that new boss. We always had this if only in our mind. However, we need to realize if we're going to follow Jesus... Our greatest if only is, if only I could be forgiven. We need our sins. We need to be forgiven for our sins if we're going to follow him. Bruce Demarest has a book out called The Cross and Salvation. And in there, he talks about total depravity a bit and gives us four outcomes of our sinful condition. Let me just talk through those. Uh, first off, he says that we are spiritually depraved, spiritually depraved. And then in Ephesians 2, 1, he quotes, you who were dead in your transgressions and sins. This, this idea of depravity, it's more than just thinking of individual sins that we do. And it, it's, it's, it's not an accurate picture to say, well, you know what? I sin about five times a day. That's about you know, 35 times a week. I guess that's not too bad. I mean, Tyler here, he probably sins seven times a week. So that means, it's, it's not fair to act like that. Instead, what the Bible wants us to see about our depravity is that we are completely sinful down to the bone and we live in a constant state of sinfulness. And the reality is, given the right set of circumstances, 
I am capable of the worst atrocities known to mankind, even though I'm a, oh, I'm a pretty good person. In fact, I read a few chapters of a book a few years ago that this guy had evaluated the lifestyles of some of the soldiers who were involved in the Holocaust in Germany. And what he came to find out was these were just your average day German citizens. They had homes, they had kids, they had families. And, and they're waking up, going to work in the morning, saying, this way to the gas chambers. And it just made me think, man, given the right set of circumstances, I'm capable of some of the worst atrocities known to mankind. It's because at my core, at my bone, I have this sin nature that I am just completely, utterly depraved in the way that Paul writes it again is we are dead in trespasses and sins. Secondly, Bruce says this, we are alienated from the life of God. Later on in Ephesians, he says, you were separate from Christ without hope and without God in this world. There's nothing about me that is godly. Everything that I know is good, I, I don't really want to do that. And everything I know is bad, that's what I end up wanting to do. I, I just, I have no reason why I could actually stand before God in any kind of righteous way. I am separated from Christ before accepting him. Number three, he says, we are guilty and condemned. Galatians 3.10, anyone who tries to live by his own effort, independent of God, is doomed to failure. The scripture backs this up. Utterly cursed is every person who fails to carry out every detail written in the book of the law. In other words, were I to stand before God, I would be seen as guilty by action, guilty by intent. And forgiveness starts with this realization that a wrong has been done, a debt has been created, and that debt must be paid for by punishment or by something else. And of course, as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ has come and paid that penalty for us, that he has risen from the dead, shown that he has conquered sin and the devil and can pay that sin for us. He has the authority to forgive us, and that's where the basis of forgiveness comes from. Number four, Bruce says this. He says, we are enslaved by sin, death, and the devil. Romans 7, 5. In the past, we were ruled by our sinful selves. Romans 6, 16. He calls us slaves to sin. And it's this realization that my heart, my mind, my body, uh, my, my soul, everything about me, Scripture points this out in many different ways, that everything about me is, is just controlled by sin. And I live, my mind is in a constant state of sinful thinking. My, in, my interactions are in a constant state of absolute selfishness, and I am driven by greed. And even the good things that you would point to me and say, oh, that's a good thing he did, even the good things that I do are ultimately driven by selfish intent. I have a song that I want to play for you by uh, artist Shy Lin. It's a song called In Adam All Die. So listen to a, a, just a clip of this song. I asked Paul to sing that live, and he said it wasn't his thing. I don't know. I tried to get him to do that. Uh, no, I, I know that, that many people are listening to the podcast or listening to this online, and for copyright reasons, we couldn't put that. So uh, head on to Spotify or uh, YouTube or something and listen to In Adam All Die by Shy Lin. Okay, commercial break is over for those that are listening online. But let's just take a moment and just, just think about our own sinful condition, that, that we are driven by this sinful instinct inside of us, the sin nature, and that we are abundantly sinful, totally depraved, and needing forgiveness. Well, we're going to pick it up in verse number six here and see that not only are we totally depraved, but the idea is that we would be totally dependent, totally dependent on sinking Jesus. You see, a strange thing happens in verse six. Jesus has already proven that he has authority over, over nature. He has authority over, uh, uh, over the physical realm. He has authority over the spiritual realm with his exorcisms that he does. But it isn't until he makes this simple claim that he can forgive sins that the scribes and the people around him begin to make a big fuss about it. So let's look at this in verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their heart. And so he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Now Mark does something interesting. He actually puts up two of these groups of people that I told you about, the scribes and those who are followers, and he puts them up side by side and makes a comparison. Now let me ask you this. What are the four guys doing, or the five guys, if you include the paralytic? They're carrying this guy. They're, they're going up on the roof, and they're, they're digging a hole through the roof. They're lowering him. I mean, they are very active in seeking out this relationship with Jesus. They, they are very active in, in, in realizing that they are desperate, that they are hopeless. And what are the scribes doing? Look at verse 6. The teachers of the law were sitting. They're, they're just sitting there. And oh, by the way, I forgot. They're thinking to themselves. They're just they're sitting there and thinking. The other guys are doing all this. And what does Jesus notice about the four guys? He notices their faith. And then right after he utters this thing of, of, of forgiveness, he turns around and he can tell he notices the skepticism of the scribes. I mean, Mark just lines them up side by side, and in a way he wants us to choose, okay, which, you know, which, which group are you in, right? The four men, they were all in. They had this, this, this faith. The scribes, however, they only had, they were there, but they weren't all in at all. They only had skepticism. I want to stop right here and just say a few words about faith. You see, in the book of Mark, faith is always action. In the book of Mark, faith is action. And we can see this every time. There's at least three times where Jesus, Jesus goes out of his way to notice someone's faith, okay? So the second one happens in chapter 5. There's this woman with a blood disease, and she basically, she, she army crawls through the dirt, you know, risking being trampled on and actually killed possibly by this mass amount of people following Jesus. She army crawls through and just reaches out just because she wants to grab Jesus' garment. Faith was an action word for this lady. In chapter 10, it's with this blind man sitting by the curb. There's no way he's going to get to Jesus. He hears the crowd. He knows that this Messiah has come. And so he just starts screaming, Jesus, son of David, Messiah. He just starts screaming. Everyone around him is saying, you know, hush down. You're, you're being annoying. You need to, let's, let's take this guy inside. But he refuses to listen. He throws all of them off as they try to grab him and just, and just continues to shout. It's funny how an act of desperation sometimes and a real, realization of our depravity, that's what makes us desperate to, to follow Jesus. And so that's what these guys do. That's what uh, the four men and the paralytic do. Now, let's talk about the faith that you and I have. Perhaps you've been called by someone a person of faith, or, or maybe you have a friend or an acquaintance that follows a different religion, and they've asked you, you know, what is your faith? What, what faith do you practice? That's, that's not really what Mark means by this. By, by faith, he's talking about this action that results from what we actually believe. It's more than just a cognitive understanding of something, and yeah, sure, I believe that. For Mark, faith is action. And so I'll ask you this. If you have a faith that is able to bring you to church occasionally on Sundays, but doesn't drive you to get involved in serving, plug into a group, a part of the life of what the church is doing, take a moment and re-examine your faith. If you have a faith that gets you to pray before a meal, but, but doesn't ever drive you to, to hospitality and to, to building bridges and relationships with those who are unchurched around you, just stop for a moment and evaluate your faith. If your following of Jesus doesn't push you to uncomfortable limits of living with Jesus and loving others like Jesus and leading others to do the same, just pause for a second here and examine your faith. If your following of Jesus doesn't cost you anything great, just pause for a moment and examine your faith. Total dependency. This is the total dependency we're talking about. This is the kind of faith that we're talking about acknowledging our depravity, begging his forgiveness, and embracing the fact that, that he is the only way that I can truly be forgiven, and this is how I follow him. 
Now, with forgiveness, uh, there's a sense of guilt that comes from our sin, and this is what Satan would have you do. Satan would have you to swallow your guilt. He would have you to compare yourself to others. Satan would have you live in shame and blame other people and isolate yourself and try to forget about it and ignore it and get stuck in bitterness. However, true forgiveness happens when we, by faith, accept that Jesus has paid our penalty, that he has risen from the dead, proving that he has victory over sin. This is true forgiveness. And, and, and for you and I, as a daily walk, day in and day out, tomorrow morning, if you can make it to work, right, it's this matter of I need his forgiveness every single day. It's this matter of stopping for a moment saying, Jesus, I have sinned against you. I sin every day. This all comes from a sinful heart. I live in a constant state of sinful thinking, of sinful intent, of a sinful attitude, and of selfishness. And if I'm going to follow you today, I really need your help. Father, forgive me. I need your help following me today. So I would encourage you to do this. Next time that you are alone in prayer, just take a moment and, and meditate on your depravity, but also meditate on the mercy and grace that Jesus brought when he actually came down and activated a relationship with us. Now, there's a story that I think illustrates this all very well. It's a book by C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia book, and it's the story of a boy named Eustace. So Eustace stumbles into a cave one day, and as he's walking around, he actually stumbles across this large vat of treasure. And there's gold in the treasure, there's, there's, there's bracelets, there's a crown, there's, there's jewelry, there's all these things in the treasure. And, his greed kind of takes over him. I mean, he wanted nothing more than to just get out of this cave, but now that he sees this treasure, he starts stuffing his pockets, he's, he's putting rings on and, and, and trying things on, and eventually he actually can't leave the treasure. He just can't bring himself to do it, and he falls asleep on the treasure. And as the story goes, Eustace wakes up, and he is terrified to find out that he has become a dragon, actually. He's, he's huge, he's hideous, he's disgusting, he has become a dragon. And what we realize as readers is that the greed that is inside of him, the sinfulness inside of him has actually changed his demeanor on the outside, and he has become this vicious creature. And after discovering that he is a dragon, in, in short, he's very disgusted with himself. He finds himself that even though his mind is still the mind of a little boy of Eustace, he finds that his digestive system is that of a dragon, and he's He's disgusting and he's, he's eating these carcasses and when, whenever he eats, he doesn't want anyone around because he's disgusted by his own self. He catches a glimpse of himself every time he walks into the water and it kind of makes him shiver because he forgets for a moment that he's a dragon and he looks down and he sees, oh man, I am I'm quite hideous. It makes him shiver. He still has friends that, that still keep him company, but of course the relationship has become a lot different and he has to actually keep a distance from him because of his breath and whenever he coughs, he he will wheeze out fire and sometimes smoke, and it's, it's a little uncomfortable, and so we can't get too close to people. But most of all, what haunts him in his mind is, are people ever going to like me? Am I ever going to keep these friends that I have? Is anybody ever going to really love me, or am I going to die alone because I've become this horrible creature? Well, the story goes on where Eustace looks up one day, Eustace the dragon, and he notices a lion. The lion's name is Aslan, and he's uh, C.S. Lewis uh, paints him as a picture of, of Jesus Christ. He looks up and sees this lion, and the lion bids him, follow me. So Eustace, he feels that he has no choice but to listen to this lion. So he gets up and he follows the lion, and the lion leads him to a marble staircase that goes down in a circle and leads to a large well that actually forms into somewhat of a bath-looking structure. And Aslan the lion, he looks at Eustace the dragon and says, undress and wash yourself. 
At first, Eustace is confused. He thinks, I'm a, I'm a dragon. I'm not wearing any clothes. And then, then, it, then it occurs to him that, wait a second, dragons are kind of like snaky animals. Maybe he wants me to shed my skin. So he starts, to, he starts to scratch at his scales, and sure enough, the scales begin to come off. He scratches harder, and the skin begins to peel off, and, and, and he gets excited because it's all coming off, and it's peeling, and, and he looks down at the carcass of, of the skin of the dragon, and then he goes to step in, and he realizes that his foot is still a dragon because it's more than just the outside. It goes deep inside of him. The, the core of who he is is actually... This, this hideous beast. So he scratches all the more and he begins to peel and he does this process about three or four times and sheds more and more layers of skin, but, but it's no use. He, he remains a dragon and then he looks up at the lion and the lion says, you have to let me take it off. And this is how Eustace words the story in, in that book. He says, I was afraid of his claws, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt before. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, smaller than I had ever been. Then he caught hold of me, threw me into the water, and I turned into a boy again. Eustace needed forgiveness because he was depraved down to his core. And you and I need forgiveness because we are depraved down to our core. We need to accept the penalty that Jesus has paid for our sin and ask for his forgiveness on a daily basis so that we can follow him and live with him. Now, at this time, we're going to move into a communion. I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team. You guys can come on back up and prepare for that. And as we get ready for communion, let me ask you this question. Are you stuck on the mat? Are you still stuck on the mat, needing that forgiveness and not having it? And if you are stuck on the mat, I'll ask you this follow-up question. What, what is keeping you on the mat? What's keeping you on that mat? And if you're unsure of what it means to be a Christian, if you're unsure of what it means to really be forgiven of your sins, I'd encourage you to come talk to me after service, talk to any of the volunteers or staff here that's wearing a badge or a shirt or something like that that shows that they're involved here. I'd encourage you to ask somebody about that. And in a moment, the ushers are going to pass the, the bread and the wine, or the bread and the juice, rather, <laughs> up and down the pews. And I would encourage you just to, just to hold on for that for a second. We're going to all take communion together. So listen to this song as the ushers pass those out. <laughs> 